Hi, and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And after weeks in which the world has obsessed about the U.S. election, we're going to do something a little different. As a respite from COVID and Trump and Biden and the Supreme Court and the political noise emanating from the United States, we're going to discuss an obscure island in the Pacific with a beautiful name called Bougainville. Why? Because we decided to shift gears for this episode because beyond the lush forests and sunshine of Bougainville, it is pushing to become the world's newest country and their big potential geopolitical implications if they succeed. Well, that's the key. Let's learn, Peter, a bit about why this even matters and what is special about this autonomous territory of Papua New Guinea, which is inhabited by less than 250,000 people who are sitting on a ton of copper and gold and who've been colonized for them and occupied at different times by Germans, Australians, Japanese and Americans. So this island has been trying for a long time to declare its independence, over 40 years. But its wealth in minerals has led to decades of war, tens of thousands dead, and finally the creation of the autonomous Bougainville government, which lasted until last December, and finally a very successful independence referendum where 98% of voters took one step closer to become the world's newest country. Okay, so Mooney, but uh, other territories are trying to lots of people trying to do exactly the same thing. They're trying to break away and they've attracted way, way, way more media attention in recent years. Like think Catalonia and Scotland and Kashmir and Kurdistan, just to name a few. And something tells me that most of you listeners haven't even heard of Bougainville because I hadn't heard of Bougainville. Mooney hadn't heard of Bougainville. So, you know, the fact is that this island is actually way ahead of all of the others on the road to joining the Sovereign State Club. But before you like rush to update your maps and sort of check out where this is and draw out the outlines of a new country, there are a number of time-consuming steps before Bougainville can become its own countries, including the ratification of a non-binding referendum by Papua New Guinea, obtaining parliamentary approval, which could take years. And then there's the hard, hard work of building a political system and achieving economic independence, not to mention gaining a seat at the United Nations. So, Peter, I have a confession to make. During this whole process, my question has been, why do we even care? And why should our listeners care? It's a question you actually asked everybody. I asked it. (laughs) I I did. I asked it a hundred times. But I've come up with two reasons and two pretty important reasons. So, first of all, because this small island and its mineral bounty is being closely watched by a number of major powers, no small thing, China, the U.S., New Zealand, Australia are all following this process. This patch of land, unexpected accessible except by a small boat, so I see um, in my research, with rich natural resources is becoming a new global battleground, as if there weren't any. Beijing and Washington have already spent money on the island. They've funded part of the referendum efforts. Both are helping to fund a sovereign Bougainville, cozying up to politicians, promising to help diversify its economy. Copper and gold mining for a long time, as we mentioned, controlled and operated by Australia's Rio Tinto company, was one of the world's most profitable mining ventures. Also very controversial, it led not only to civil warfare and violence, but also to great amounts of toxic waste and unchecked mine water waste. 
So reopening the shuttered Panguna mine has become another issue in the independence efforts and an estimated $58 billion of copper and gold reserves are still in the mine and have caught the attention of Chinese companies. It's amazing. You know, there's just no escaping the geopolitical battles that emanate from China's expansive foreign policy. You know, just as they Chinese are doing in the South China Sea, where Beijing has been flexing its strength lately, China is trying to grain ground in Oceania and the Pacific Island region. It's pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into mining projects into the Solomon Islands, which just last year shifted diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China in 2018. 19. And meanwhile, a secretive deal last year saw a Beijing-based company with a close ties to the Chinese Communist Party secure exclusive development rights to the entire island of Tulaji and its surroundings, alarming U.S. officials who see the island chains of the South Pacific as crucial to keeping China in check and protecting important sea routes. So, Peter, I promised I found two reasons for following this island and this these developments. And the second reason we're talking about Bougainville is the domino effect. You mentioned we're familiar with big name independence movements around the globe from Scotland to Catalonia, but the numbers are actually much higher. There are over 60 secessionist movements worldwide, including the Uyghurs, the Kurds, the Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan, which has been in the news recently, and more. In the Pacific Islands alone, there's a breeding ground for secession from New Caledonia to West Papua to New Ireland. And of course, Russia, China, and the U.S. are taking note. Internal differences and poor planning and logistical and political difficulties usually bring about the end of independence dreams. And we've seen a lot of those just kind of die a, a, either a slow or a very fast death and often resulting in violence. But with Bougainville, now at the front of the line, the island could get in line to become country number 194 years and years after South Sudan in 2011, Montenegro in 2006, and Timor-Leste in 2002. So this doesn't happen very often. The, The roster is not very crowded, but count on others to keep close tabs on these developments. Okay, so let's figure out what are the odds for Bougainville It's probably actually higher than most due to support by Australia and interest in Bougainville from China and the United States. But it's not a done deal. And the new president, a former rebel commander who will now lead the independence talks, is already being investigated for his ties to the gold business. So to shine some light on this very obscure subject that we've come up with, but could pull a lot more geopolitical weight than one would expect, we've invited Shane McLeod, joining us from Australia. Shane's a research fellow at the Lowy Institute's Australia PNG Network, and he's an expert on Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, has written extensively on Bougainville. Formerly a senior editor at ABC News in Sydney, he's managed several flagship radio programs and as foreign correspondent covered Japan Papua Guinea, and most of the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Great to be with you. I'll start with a very simple question. Why is Bougainville important to our listeners? It's important because it's the site of what's been a fairly intractable conflict in Melanesia for the past 30 years. So these are the islands to the northeast of Australia. Um, Bougainville is a these days an autonomous province within Papua New Guinea, and it's right at the eastern tip of PNG. As a result of that, it's the the reason why PNG controls a really vast area of the Pacific Ocean, um, has claims to the resources in those waters, but also 
the conflict that has, um, I guess, it's been peaceful for the past two decades, but the conflict that erupted in Bougainville in the late 1980s was really the most violent, uh, the most deadly, and really one of the big flashpoints in post-colonial nations in the South Pacific. So resolution of that conflict and its eventual um, political resolution is a really key outcome that the countries of this region need to really stabilise the political situation in, in the Melanesia region. Shane, could I just ask, are the people of Bougainville different? I mean, the Catalonians see themselves as different from the Spaniards, the Kurds, different from the Iraqis. Could you just tell our audience a little bit about what what is the linguistic or nationalistic or ethnic reason for seeking out secession? Sure. Bougainville is quite different from the rest of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea itself is a, a fantastically diverse country, the most linguistically diverse country on the planet. More than 800 languages are spoken throughout PNG. Bougainville within PNG has always been quite distinct. The people, the majority of the people who live in Bougainville see themselves both ethnically and physically as different from um, Papua New Guineans. Many people on Bougainville have very dark skin. Um, they see themselves as having a different cultural heritage. They describe people on mainland PNG as redskins, um, which is sort of a delineation between the, the different coloration of their skins. Also, just historically, Bougainville has been more connected to its neighbours in what is now Solomon Islands. So when you look at the geography of Bougainville, um, it's only a few kilometres to the islands of uh, the Solomons, whereas from the rest of Papua New Guinea and the nearest island group is the New Britain Islands of PNG. Um, it's quite a distance. So Bougainville historically has seen itself as different from the rest of PNG and really from colonial times has sought a different recognition of itself from the rest of PNG. So even as Papua New Guinea became independent from Australia in the 1970s, Bougainvillians saw their political future as separate from that and actually pushed to become independent at the same time as PNG was becoming independent. Something that was remarkable was the the numbers in the vote to secede. Usually referendums are a lot closer and not just overwhelmingly in favor or against. What is at stake for the inhabitants? Why do they want to separate so badly beyond kind of the cultural affinities that they don't feel with the main, with Papua New Guinea? The, the big driver, I guess, has been the peace process, which itself has grown out of that wish for a separate political identity independent of PNG, which has been you know, in place has been part of Bougainville's history um, throughout the colonial period. The peace process itself has been so well supported on Bougainville and has been so successful in diffusing the conflict. And the conflict that erupted in Bougainville started as a reaction you know, to, to mining, to the large Panguna mine in central Bougainville, but then descended into layers of intergroup, intertribal conflict that became very vicious, very violent, and, and led to just really intractable conflicts between Bougainvillians. So when, when that resulted in a peace process, and that peace process set out timeframes for a referendum on independence, people really got behind that process. They've had to wait two decades to get to that referendum. So when the referendum came round, um, the opportunity to finally have their say and to say that we want a political future separate from Papua New Guinea was so strongly embraced. There, were, there really wasn't a faction arguing for the alternative. There was no political support for anything other than independence. And 
that's why you see a result. I mean, those sort of numbers are the numbers you think, you know, perhaps a dictatorship somewhere or a tin pot democracy. But it was such a well-supported process, such a peaceful process, and there was such joy on Bougainville at being able to finally have their say in a peaceful way that it just resulted in such an overwhelming majority. So I think that was a wonderful explanation about why the people of Bougainville want and to secede and what's their interest. But I think what's also interesting about this particular case is the fact that there's a lot of other interest in this in this process, not only by Australia, which has a sort of natural interest from a geographic point of view, but it's also by China, by the United States, and even by Russia. What's all the attention to this island of only 250,000 people? I mean, it's basically, it's a speck. Why, why is everybody so interested? I think it's interesting because it's, it's really the first step in the sort of post-colonial era about people in the region getting more control over their political destiny. And as they do that, the resources and the political aspirations, the political units that are created become, I guess, of interest to global powers. If you look at where Bougainville is, it's, it's right in the middle of a number of countries, territories in the South Pacific. If you were looking at strategic locations in the region, you might say, well, Bougainville would be a fantastic place, for example, that we might want to visit if we had a navy in the region. You might be interested in resources. Bougainville has amazing mineral resources from gold and copper and other minerals. It's also, as I mentioned, it's in a location where it controls potentially a substantial amount of fisheries resources. So countries particularly in North Asia are looking for sources for fish, for seafood, uh, for their domestic market. So Bougainville has amazing natural resources and geographic location. And I think that's what leads to people thinking of the, the powers that would have an interest. In terms of actually doing something about that interest, I tend to think that some of the speculation about how far those big powers would go in actually involving themselves in Bougainville are perhaps a little overstated. I think it's important to keep in mind Bougainville is a very undeveloped part of the world. Apart from the Panguna mine, which was developed from the late 1960s, infrastructure is very limited. Um, and the capacity of countries to come in and do anything substantial short term is pretty limited. But there's also, I guess, for, shall we say, people with a more entrepreneurial bent, um, dealing with uh, a developing country government, coming in with proposals, they become very attractive. So I think sometimes uh, involvement that may not be officially sanctioned or it may not be that substantial becomes more prominent in a situation where there's not much development happening. Okay, so there's a lot of steps that are needed from the step to the decision to secede to the step of actually becoming a country. So tell us where where on that scale is Bougainville today? So the process is very prescriptive. The peace agreement was signed in 2000. Um, that established a special status for Bougainville within Papua New Guinea, an autonomous region within Papua New Guinea with its own government. And over time, powers have been ceded from the national government to the, to the regional government. Uh, it has its own House of Representatives, and we've just had elections for that in the past couple of months. Again, a fairly successful election process. New President Ishmael Turama elected. He's a former fighter in the civil conflict. The peace agreement set down the referendum 
as needing to happen within 15 years of that autonomous government being set out. So that that was met. What the peace agreement also sets down is that the outcome of that referendum then leads to negotiation. So it in itself wasn't a trigger for Bougainville's independence, but it was, a, I guess, the statement of the people as to what they happen, what they want to happen now puts the PNG government and the autonomous Bougainville government into a situation where they now need to negotiate about Bougainville's political future. Bougainvillians obviously very strongly have voted to say they want to be independent. PNG's government not as enthusiastic about that and so those negotiations now uh, happen. They're probably going to take a while. Secessionist movements have uh, they come and go and most of them fail. So when you say they're going to take a while Give us a sense of when people can run to their maps and scratch in uh, country 194. <laughs> um, so the new president, Ishmael Turama, has said he would like it to be within the next three years. Whether that's a realistic time frame from the PNG side, I think it's probably not. Um, there's there's a, a number of interlocking steps that are going to probably stretch this out. The first is that Many of the PNG leaders who are there today were not around when this agreement was signed back in 2000. They weren't in parliament. Many of them are really going to be reluctant to agree for part of Papua New Guinea to devolve itself and become an independent country. There are really strong connections, obviously. Lots of Bougainvillians live in Papua New Guinea. They work in Papua New Guinea. They work in the Papua New Guinea public service, things like that. So people are not on the PNG side, super enthusiastic about this. From the Bougainville side, they are obviously ready. You have national elections happening in Papua New Guinea where this presumably will be an issue that the newly elected MPs are going to have to deal with. All of these things are likely to put, I guess, just roadblocks in quick progress on those talks. As the political leadership on the PNG side moves into an election phase, they're not really going to be focused on getting this done before the next elections, which are due in the middle of 2022. On the Bougainville side, you've got a new crop of MPs who've just been elected who are getting, I guess, their feet under the desk and starting to learn how they will operate within the government set, setting as well. So I think it's going to be a while before they can really sit down and talk about, well, what will this mean and how will it happen? And while that's going on, you do have this reluctance from the PNG side to move very quickly at all. So the new president, Ishmael Torama, has been recently linked and it's been covered by international media to having stakes in gold ventures. Is this something that's controversial or is this something that's going to help him down the road? I think it's been a bit of a reminder for him of the realities of taking political office. He, for the past 10 years, has been building a pretty successful career as a businessman in Bougainville. And you know, as a fairly prominent figure from the conflict times, always had a very big profile and a lot of international investors, I think, look to making partnerships with people like Mr. Torama. So now he's been elected president, he's had to acknowledge that he was involved in some of these ventures and has just said in the past week or two that he's going to now have to step away from those ventures. I don't think it damages him. I think people on Bougainville see him as someone who gets things done. But I think it's a reminder for him of the politics of now that he's president he won't be able to be as closely linked to some of these business ventures. And repeatedly, we see 
efforts to bring in outside investment in Bougainville, because of the conflict, there's still a lot of suspicion about outside actors and outside corporates coming in, which really stems from that pushback there was about the mine, the Panguna mine itself, which is really central to Bougainville's recent history. So I have a couple of questions. Have you been to Bougainville and what does it look like? What what does it feel like? And then in, in that context, do you think it beyond mining and, and uh, essentially mining, is there another form of livelihood for people? Is tourism something to be developed? Is um, agriculture or agribusiness? If you were president of Bougainville, what, what sectors would you develop? So Bougainville is the quintessential tropics. It is hot, it is humid, it is um, crushed coral beaches, it is palm trees. It is also very hot and very wet. So, you know, for, for people who are going to the tropics, it is the full tropical experience. As I mentioned earlier, the infrastructure is fairly limited. It's colonial economy. So talking sort of 70, 80 years ago, Bougainville was first colonized by Germany then by Australia. Um, there was World War II period where it was occupied by Japan, post-war became Australian, managed at, a, again, um, was plantation-based. So coconut, coconut plantations were a big part of Bougainville's agricultural history. More recently, things like cocoa um, have become prominent cash crops. So there are opportunities to develop an, econom an economy based around agriculture. Mining has been the biggest part of the economy over the past 50 years, and that was really focused on Panguna, which was the Rio Tinto developed copper and gold mine right in the centre of Bougainville. At, at one time, was the largest of its kind in the world. It's a massive hole that's been dug in the middle of central Bougainville. Um, and right now, it's essentially derelict. It's sitting there. It's not being managed. There are huge concerns about the environmental impact of, uh, you know, the tropical environment leaching copper concentrates out of that mine, for example. Um, the prospects for Bougainville are a bit challenging on that front. I mean, people have raised the idea of fisheries, you know, that if Bougainville got control of the waters and the sort of the... Um, territorial waters that are currently controlled by PNG, that might be a source, the, the revenues that could come from international fishing coming into those waters. Agriculture is a potential source, but, you know, how far can you go in developing things like a cocoa industry, a coconut industry? You've got a lot of competitors just in the immediate region and globally. So focus tends to come back to mining, but mining's been so controversial in, P in, in Bougainville it's been such a politically sensitive issue and it has such an impact on the environment. Do people want to go back to that? And that's one of the big questions for Bougainvillians over the next short term, medium term, long term is do they want to invite in the sort of projects that caused so much conflict in the past, but how else do they find the economic resources to build a potentially new and independent nation? Can I, can I go just go back for a second to... Papua New Guinea's role. I mean, you. I think you described very well, sort of the, the a different generation that sort of engaged the peace process, and today there are new MPs and new leaders who who weren't engaged in in that process. I mean, what what incentives does Papua New Guinea have to agree to this? And won't Papua New Guinea be like almost every other country, and it'll end up opposing it, and then? The next question is obviously, and what will the result of that opposition be? Will we get into another bloody conflict? That's, it's really the question at the moment is how is PNG going to handle this? 
PNG was very much opposed to any special measures, any recognition of Bougainville right up until the peace process. I mean, at one point, having exhausted its support from countries like Australia and New Zealand, um, PNG resorted to contracting outside mercenaries to come in and try to resolve the conflict, which itself led to a huge domestic political um, flare-up in PNG, the, the ousting of a prime minister. The support for the peace process has been to follow the letter of the peace process. When that process reaches the point of PNG needing to make a decision, that's, I guess, the big question of how PNG's leaders will act on the wishes of the people of Bougainville, but also a lot of people in PNG who see the violence, the hurt, the death that came about from the civil conflict as the price Bougainvillians have paid for their independence. So the sentiment I saw being expressed in the aftermath of the referendum was very much, we should accept that this is what Bougainville wants now. But in practical terms, what that means for PNG's leaders is that a province can leave. And that in a nation with so much ethnic diversity, so much geographic diversity is a real danger point for PNG. PNG's leaders fear that if one province goes, then other provinces that perhaps have the resources, the political organisation and the geographic isolation from the rest of the country might want to go the same way. So there are provinces in the islands to the north of Bougainville, New Britain, New Ireland, that essentially they're quite separate from PNG. You have to fly to get there. They're, you know, one and a half hours, two hours flying time from the capital, Port Moresby. And increasingly, as PNG's government struggles to deliver services and manage its finances, some of those provinces really don't see much role for the national government in their affairs. So there is a view in some sections of Port Moresby that this is a real danger point and other provinces will want to go their own way. But there's also the reality, which is that Bougainville does not want to be part of PNG. It has made its views very clear. And PNG doesn't have the resources to force another position. So to me, inevitably, it has to be resolved with Bougainville's independence. The question is how long it takes to get to that point. Let's let's just move quickly because as we run out of time here, I, I just want to talk a little bit about the geopolitical battle. So China is really interested uh, and has become involved in, in not only in Bougainville, but also in, in other parts of the Pacific and in the far Pacific, not, not only in the South China Sea. Can you tell us what does China stand to gain by funding and helping the independence movement? Where And where is the U.S. in juxtaposition to that effort? It's an interesting question. To me, I can't see there's a lot of interest for China in being seen to align itself in a Bougainville situation. It's been such a complex process and such a drawn out and largely successful peace agreement. You don't want to be seen to be the country that comes in and perhaps disrupts that. But at the same time, a newly independent nation will need international partners and friends. So for China, it's an opportunity to be there and to help Uh, an independent Bougainville to get set up and to form its new administration and to get on with being an independent country. I think there has been concern expressed about the role of China in the Pacific region. Um, We've done some work here at the Institute mapping aid flows, for example, in the region and looking at the way that China has increasingly become a development partner to countries in the region. I think it's important that, you know, that that those offers of assistance aren't rebuffed because of some geopolitical 
argument or standoff. Um, the key is making sure that when assistance is offered, that it's meaningful and it helps, that it doesn't lead countries into situations where they overdo it on debt or that the infrastructure that they need isn't the infrastructure that's delivered. So I think it could be really positive. And I think an independent Bougainville will need independent partners. It's going to need international diplomatic re relations with countries and it will need development assistance. So I think it's important that it's seen in that context. And I think Bougainville, like many countries or many potential countries, Bougainville as a potential country, among other countries in the, in the South Pacific, the, the key about countries in the region is that their political independence, their sovereignty is the reason that animates politics. And so it's not given away lightly. People might be interested in arrangements and agreements, economic support, development, but at the at the the nub of their political life is the sovereignty of their countries and people of the pacific guard that they protect that and they recognize that that is really key to their political life Shane McLeod thank you so much for joining us on Altamar and explaining this far away issue for us less far away for you but <laughs> this far away issue for us it's been a pleasure Peter it strikes me that this this topic is, is so obscure. At one point, I thought that Bougainville was actually lush and beautiful and the next tourist attraction in the in the region. And then I thought, my goodness, it's China's new pond. And then I thought, oh, wow, this is just an example of, um, you know, how referendums can work in a, in a specific environment. And I come back with nothing. The only thing I can come back out of these three questions or three issues is that they have done a marvelous job of putting themselves on the map and to make international news and to have them being discussed, you know, in, in, in different, in different media outlets, it's come out everywhere in the mainstream media. So if they are as successful as, you know, at getting their story out as they, as they are, um, if they're equally successful at, at pulling, pulling off becoming a new country, then that would be great. <laughs> You're such a pessimist. Um, such Only a today. But let, let me, you know, what struck me from this interview, which is almost so difficult to believe given all of the difficulties caused by so many other secessionist movement is the sense of, you know, deliberation and care both the Bougainvillians but also the Papua New Guineans have taken in trying to sort of settle this out. And though, you know, and Shane seems to believe that notwithstanding considerable amount of opposition in Papua New Guinea, that they're in the end that Papua New Guineans are going to say, but these guys really want this. Who are we to stand in their way? I don't know. I mean, you know, they uh, there there's a bunch of islands and regions in Papua New Guinea, they all have secessionist claims. I don't know if it's going to be so easy to get to 194. I again, you sound skeptical too, but it does. It is very interesting how an overwhelming referendum can really change the livelihoods of these people. So, good luck to Bougainville in becoming country number 194. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 